The problem is even if I fix it structurally, the nerves that are sending message to that structure may continue to fire off abnormal signals. So even though I've done a technically perfect job, it may not extinguish your pain because the alarm may not switch off. Hello and welcome to Malopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Malopathy.org. Where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and a founder of Malopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Malopathy Matters. So welcome back. Today we're again looking back into the archives and Ewan has selected his personal favourite from the last four years. Would you like to introduce this and why you chose it, Ewan? Yeah, I chose Professor Abdul Lalkin, Pain and the Feeling Brain. There was so much great information, we had to pack it into two episodes. And as a person with chronic pain, I found the interview really interesting, especially where he explained the emotional connection with pain. I remember I was really struggling after surgery and it was down to a few factors, for example, the environment I was in, my frame of mind. But once I tackled them, the healing and the dealing with pain got a lot easier. And I always look at these aspects when I have heightened pain because stress can play a big part. So if we can de-stress in any way, we can help reduce the pain. Well, let's hear from Professor Abdul Alkin, of course, Professor of Pain Medicine at Manchester Metropolitan University and author of the book, Pain and the Feeling Brain. It's a pleasure to have you and we're delighted to be talking to you shortly following the release of your your book. But I wondered if perhaps you could just give us a start by introducing the concept of pain and, and how we really experience pain. So the official definition, um, which was issued by the International Association for the Study of Pain. So they're an organization founded in 1972, which really seeks to understand pain as a symptom and as a disease. And their original definition, which was issued in 1979, was an attempt really to understand and communicate that pain is both an unpleasant sensory and an emotional experience. Um, And you know, somewhat a little bit clumsily, they talk about it resembling um, or being described in terms of actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. And the reason for using those sorts of words is because you can have pain in the absence of ongoing damage, which is what chronic pain is. Um, The definition's been changed recently because They acknowledge that the original definition required people to be able to describe what they were feeling. Um, But of course, there are population groups where that can't happen. Um, And so, you know, in infants or individuals who are unable to communicate verbally. So they've changed it slightly to pain being an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And I'll unpack that a bit, really, because it is kind of important to understand. Um, So 
we distinguish between nociception and pain. Well, I say we, I mean, most people who work in pain medicine do, but the majority of the lay population don't. But if you really look at the mechanism of pain, whenever you have an injury, um, it causes the release of inflammatory mediators. And there are only really three ways you can damage the human body mechanically. Um, so a mechanical injury, a chemical injury or a thermal injury. And when you do that, the body releases inflammatory mediators and those mediators have a number of roles, um, one of which is to start the process of healing and, you know, clot blood vessels and prevent you from exsanguinating. But their other role is to trigger nociceptors. And the nociceptor is the harm-sensing receptor, Nochi being the Greek god of mischief. And nociceptors are complex and varied group of receptors which are present on free nerve endings throughout the body. And those are usually A-delta and C-fibers, some of which have myelin around, and so they communicate quite quickly, and others that are unmyelinated, so the communication to the spinal cord and brain is slower. So that initial bit of the pathophysiology of chronic pain is what we generally refer to as transduction. So what you're doing there is you're converting a mechanical, chemical, or thermal injury into an electrical or electrochemical signal. The next part is that signal or that information about harm or mischief or damage is communicated to the spinal cord. And the spinal cord is not passive. It acts as a sort of relay junction box integrating center. And the information, once it reaches the spinal cord, is then transmitted, if you imagine, a bit like fireworks across the night sky. You know, a single shot goes into multiple umbrellas of light and it goes to the brain, to different parts of the brain. And so it will go to the brain, the, the area of the brain that uh, is about location and about sensation. And, um, but it will also go to parts of the brain that deal with emotion, motivation, fight, flight, um, the neuroendocrine system. And so we talk about a sort of pain neuromatrix or salience networks that this information goes to. And it's only really when that information reaches the brain and is interpreted by that individual's very unique behavior, learning, previous experience with pain, um, life situation, context, that we produce this experience of pain, which is both sensation and emotion. So the generation of that abnormal electrical information is only the start but the end point of the experience of pain is the perception of that information. And that's why you may have five friends, all of whom have a paper cut, but you know that that paper cut will be met with a very different response in all of your five friends. You know, some people will take the day off. Uh, some people, um, you know, might seek immediate medical attention and somebody else will stick their finger in their mouth and carry on with the rest of their day. And actually the last part of the kind of pain pathway is the sticking the finger in the mouth or going to seek help. Because what happens there, by putting your finger in your mouth, you're stimulating other receptors, which then block some of those signals that go to the brain. You're comforted by having your thumb in your mouth, and so there are brain areas that are activated. And they then send a message down to your spinal cord to reduce the number of signals going to your brain.
and then that modifies the overall experience of pain. And that's why the IASP really talked about, you know, sensory and an emotional experience, because whenever you injure yourself, it's a threat to the organism. I mean, you know, a paper cut isn't, but if you were shot or if you were, um, you know, you, you fell off your bicycle and broke your arm, potentially if that didn't get treated, um, you'd be in big trouble. You know, if you don't pay attention to the source of damage, um, it can lead to infection, it can lead to further complications and ultimately death. And so pain is hardwired into the most primitive aspects of our brains, you know, in, into the sort of the survival, the survival centers of the brain. And uh, it is modified to a degree by our higher centers, but ultimately it is a complex experience that demands immediate attention. So, but you can have pain, you know, the, the, the evidence from neurosciences is that the same areas of the brain light up when you have a broken heart, you know, uh, which you wouldn't know about bed, I'm sure. But, you know, there are those of us who've been disappointed in love. And uh, so that pain is as real as the pain of a broken arm, at least from the point of view of the brain. So I think then perhaps that really gets to the heart of, of what your book is about. So what is perhaps starts off as a simple chemical conduction of information actually turns into a very complex perception based on our brain and also is modulated based on our, our brain to some degree. Is that the sort of sense driving what motivated putting this book together? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the book kind of came about by, um, by accident. I, uh, I used to run the pain education within the service. Um, and uh, one of the trainees knew an agent who, uh, who was a friend of his. And uh, he kind of over, I think, a beer said, oh, that might be an interesting to do to get Abdul to write a book about pain. Um, and so <clears throat> Tom asked Ben and Ben asked me, oh, would you write a couple of chapters and see what you've got to say. I then, of course, because I'm of a certain age, proceeded to write a couple of chapters on, you know, my great life story while sat in a cottage in Cumbria. Um, I sent it to Ben and Ben went, well, actually, Abdul, you're not really famous enough for people to care who you are. Maybe have another think. And so I thought, well, what do I do in clinic every day? What are the things that I find are distressing to patients? Where are the misunderstandings? What makes my clinical practice very difficult? Where do I see patients making poorly informed choices about their healthcare? And how do I go about explaining pain to people when they're in clinic? And as a consequence, I sat down and came up with the chapters in the book that really reflect both my clinical practice, but they also reflect how I teach about pain and they reflect the kind of understanding of the complex phenomenon of pain um, which I try to communicate when I teach. And so the book really starts out with my view of how we try to simplify what is actually a very complex organism. It talks about the things I've just mentioned in the last few minutes in terms of trying to sort of drill down to how pain works from a biological point of view. And then it goes on to talk about acute pain, which is pain due to damage, and then chronic pain, which is pain that persists even when everything is healed, and which for a long time people just thought was psychological. I go then on to talk about the medications we use and what their origins are, and why perhaps they've been, been introduced the way they have been, and why potentially they're causing harm in the world today, such as the opioids. And then I talk about the different kinds of 
non-medical therapies, non-medication, non-doctor therapies that can be used to modify that pain experience so that people can live adaptively and well with a condition which can't be cured. Um, but whilst they may feel initially quite powerless to influence, that their behavior and their brains and their response to that harmful information can in fact massively influence the way that uh, they live. So whilst pain is um, inevitable, I think in all of us, disability and distress, uh, perhaps not so. I have to say it was, I really enjoyed reading it. And um, my wife who's a GP is also enjoying reading it. But we're coming from the professional side. Did you have a certain audience you, you were writing to when you were, when you were writing the book? Is there was somebody you had in, had in mind? Yeah, the, the book is purely written for the lay person. Um, I tried to write it in a way that makes my clinical practice um, as accessible to a general audience as I can. Um, and that's really what it's aimed at. You know, I think that allied healthcare professionals um, can benefit from reading it as well, simply because pain medicine is a fairly niche specialty. Um, and, and the way that people who practice in pain medicine understand pain may be very different from my surgical colleagues or even, you know, people working in general practice or in general medical specialties where the focus is always on, okay, you've got pain, let's, let's kind of move beyond that and find out what the cause is so we can cure it, which is fine, you know, if you're presenting with major trauma because their pain potentially is a useful indicator of where the problem is. But the longer pain goes on for, the more complex it becomes neurologically, um, and the more it's influenced by maladaptive patterns of behavior, the less useful pain is as an indicator of disease. And so I, I hope that the book really will help the general public understand what's happening when they experience pain. And, and give them the opportunity to reflect on why sometimes as a medical profession, we don't do very well in terms of helping alleviate that pain. So yeah, the book, the book is very much aimed at um, the general population. And, and just, I guess, reflecting on some of those points myself, when I, when I was reading it, I think one of the early parts of your, your, your therapy when, when you're offering therapies is often just to readjust the expectation of, of your patients in terms of what what will be the end point for, for, for their chronic pain and particularly that you know you're not going to have a magic bullet that takes that away completely is that why do you think that's such an important early step in in someone's understanding of pain and is that a difficult process to to convey yeah i think so um i it, and people often don't like what i have to say the, i allude to a previous point in that pain um, pain is like hunger or thirst um, or an itch that you can't scratch. It completely takes over your ability to think. You know, when people people talk about being hangry, you know, so hungry that they become angry about it. Um, and pain does that. And so often when people come to you in the clinic, what they really want is for you to be the first person to tell them exactly what's wrong, to then tell them exactly how you're going to fix it. So that this pain alarm that has been going been going off for months or sometimes years can be switched off. The difficulty comes when you tell them, well, actually, I don't have anything that can switch that alarm off. And what you really need to do is learn how to live adaptively whilst that alarm continues to go off. Now, the difficulty is when you tell people that they have pain, but that, that, isn't, but that it isn't due to anything dangerous, 
their first response is, well, are you saying it's imaginary or are you saying it's all in my head? And that's the difficulty because you then have to explain that actually the pain is maintained because of changes within the way your nervous system functions. But that's very hard if the patients come from surgeons or from physicians who have actually said to them, well, you've got a degenerative spine or your discs are crumbling. If you then go ahead, but actually you say, well, actually, no, your spine is structurally safe. The pain is being maintained by the fact that your brain, spinal cord and nerves have changed. That's a very confusing message. And so it takes a long time to explain pain to somebody who has actually never received an explanation from the clinicians that um, they've seen. It's a bit like going out with somebody who's actually had a very poor breakup, you know, and uh, sometimes I wish the surgeons would break up properly with their patients and go, well, it's not you, it's me. Um, and give them, and what I think sometimes is lacking is the language to say to somebody, look, I'm a surgeon I can fix things that are causing pain or things that are making your body not work properly. The problem is even if I fix it structurally, the nerves that are sending message to that structure may continue to fire off abnormal signals. So even though I've done a technically perfect job, it may not extinguish your pain because the alarm may not switch off. The problem is most surgeons are never trained to actually communicate that message to patients. I just reflect on that, of course, because I sit in a surgeon's shoes and, and perhaps are, are guilty of, of, of some of this. I think, you know, I guess there's two, two questions about, you know, how early do you think that could start in a conversation? Because obviously, you know, some people do get better with these operations, their pain does go away. They don't have that acute pain, it doesn't linger so much. And so I guess, you know, where do you think optimally that kind of conversation should start in a consultation around surgery? And I guess the second part question is, I was thinking about this is, you know, whether or not as, as doctors, we've become a little bit guilty of always leaving the door open. We're never so, you know, we're never 100% certain about things anymore. There's always a bit of doubt. And maybe that doubt gives hope to people who perhaps don't get the messages that we're trying to give across. I would probably distinguish between two issues. The one is, are you operating to restore the continuity of a body part that is damaged? You know, like, say if you've got a broken radius and ulna, you know, so you've broken your forearm bones, they're sort of flapping in the breeze, rubbing against one another, and the arm doesn't work properly because of that. So there you're operating to restore the continuity of those bones in order to preserve the function of the arm. It's an entirely different issue when you're operating for pain. And I think that's where the conversation needs to start. So I would have, I have no issue with operating on people who actually have, you know, traumatic injuries where you're trying to restore anatomical continuity. There, the issues around post-operative rehabilitation are important. And so what surgeons and the general team needs to know there is, that some people may be more predisposed to progressing to chronic pain. So if they have anxiety issues, if they have a tendency to low mood, if they catastrophize with regards to injury, in other words, whenever something bad happens to them, they tend to magnify it, they tend to feel helpless in the face of it, and they tend to think about it over and over again. If they're very fearful about the pain they feel after an operation, if they feel unreassured, they won't move 
and those patients then are at risk of developing post-operative pain. So I think, you know, their occupational therapy, working together with physiotherapy and the surgeon, as well as the nursing team, can work together to rehabilitate people following an injury. But I think operations where you're operating for pain, so arthroplasty surgery is a classic example, or in your field, discectomy surgery. You know, discectomy for a foot drop where you're trying to, or cordae equina, where you're trying to get back recovery of bladder and bowel function or foot or motor function, you know, that's a different story. Again, it's surgery for function. But in arthroplasty surgery, for example, of the knee, where you're operating on somebody with arthritis of the knee, how well that person does depends on psychosocial factors unrelated to how technically brilliant the surgeon is or how amazing, you know, the joint prosthesis is. And it's been shown that preoperative anxiety, the presence of depression, pain at another site such as back pain, are all predictors of a poor outcome, even with technically successful surgery. And so I think what we really need now, much more than ever, is a team approach to the management of the, the disease or the illness of arthritis and associated disability and distress so that we can pick the right candidate. So, for example, with degenerative scoliosis now at Salford, there's a psychologist on board with the spinal surgeons to decide which patients are the ones that they should operate on. And the spinal orthopedic surgeons understand that their remit is to understand, okay, well, what degree of scoliosis needs operating on? The psychologist, together with the pain physician, manage the patient's expectations with regards to the outcome from a pain point of view, and also, you know, implement conservative therapies to try and assist them. And that sort of team approach, situated within a, in a value-based medicine philosophy, is really where we need to progress to, in my view, when it comes to operations where you're operating purely for pain, rather than the restoration of anatomical function and continuity. And bringing that back to degenerative cervical myelopathy, I suppose we've got this uh, interesting issue here where we're sort of caught between two sides. We are not purely a pain condition, not purely a function condition. We're operating to remove spinal cord compression to try and restore function. But one of the work that's been done through the charity and and myelopathy.org is is recognising there is a large burden of pain, particularly long-term after a spinal cord injury and perhaps we should also be giving more thought to trying to manage that from from the outset and i think there's been a great difficulty from from the work that we've done with you and, and the charities trying to explain to surgeons in this field that pain is an important consideration in uh, degenerative cervical myelopathy what would you say to professionals perhaps who, who doubt that pain is is of significance in, in this sort of a condition i think that is difficult so i often think as a, somebody who inserts spinal cord stimulators for the management of chronic pain, that's a surgical procedure where you're really trying to influence pain. And what I've begun to realize is that the patients where that device is successful are the individuals who are motivated to improve their function. And prior to having the surgery, the patients are assessed by our clinical psychologist in order to see what their goals and understanding of the disease process is and how they hope to benefit from the treatment. And I think that the first thing that needs to really happen is surgeons need to understand the complexity of pain in a way that I've alluded to in this brief conversation. 
to really understand that nociception is not pain. And that where you have cervical myelopathy, so on an MR scan, you've got um, signal changes within the cord, um, that there will be signs, you know, upper motor neuron signs that they can objectively demonstrate. But the patient will also be interpreting the unpleasant sensations that are coming as a consequence of having their nervous system squashed together with the sort of nociception between the joints of the um, of the vertebra that cause unpleasant sensations when they move their necks. And those feelings and sensations will be interpreted by a very unique person. And depending on that person's, you know, psychosocial milieu, that will very much influence what they tell the surgeon. And so what you really need is a set of descriptors so that the surgeon can understand the person that's in front of them. And by what that I mean is you'd conduct your clinical examination and you'd have your MRI scan and the patient would tell you what their symptoms are, both functional and in terms of pain. But beyond that, what you want to understand is, is this person anxious and depressed? And do they have a history of anxiety and depression? How do they cope with adversity? Do they catastrophize? Are they afraid of movement? How much support do they have at home? What are the implications for this operation for them? You know, what's their general health like? And then you get a, what you'll be able to do then is to phenotype your cervical myelopathy patients, not just in terms of the biomedical data that you have from MRI and clinical examination, but also in terms of psychosocial data. And then I think you may be able to understand more specifically as a surgeon what group of patients benefit the most from your operative intervention. But I think when you operate on a heterogeneous group of patients, which you think are homogenous because the MRI scans are the same between a group, um, then you're going to get variable outcomes. And you won't understand that because what you don't know is what you don't know. And what you don't know because you're not measuring it are all of those psychosocial factors that influence the report of pain and disability. So, so I fully agree with that, and I think that's a really interesting new direction for for DCM, particularly as we recognise the, the important burden of pain and how we how we can address that. We mentioned at the top that transition between acute and, and chronic, and we've touched on the implications of the spinal cord versus the sort of wear and tear changes in the spine. What what is the significance of classifying pain, and and, and how do you classify pain further? Perhaps you could elaborate on that for us. So chronic pain is pain that persists for more than three months. And it used to be defined in terms of tissue healing, but tissue healing is variable. But at three months, most things that are going to heal will heal. So if you've got pain that persists beyond three months, what we're essentially saying is that not only do you have that transduction nociception process going on, but you also have potentially processes such as central and peripheral sensitization where those nociceptors have changed how they work. They've become more varied, more easily switched on, more in number, more sensitive. The spinal cord input has changed. So potentially when you receive an input at the spinal cord, it's uh, shot off more easily to your brain and uh, with, greater, with a greater amount of information. 
and also the brain that that information is received by changes. So not only do you have the normal processes which underpin pain in you know everybody, um, you've also now sensitized that pain alarm. And as a consequence, after three months, um, even if you change the nosis, even if you change the nociceptive focus, you may not um, stop the pain. And I think that's probably a reasonable model um, to look at the transition between acute and chronic pain. And what do we mean by the term neuropathic pain then, specifically? So neuropathic pain is defined fairly specifically as pain due to disease or injury of a nerve. Um, if you look at mechanistic descriptors of pain, there are probably three well-recognized groups of chronic pain. The one is uh, neuropathic pain, so pain due to disease or injury of a nerve. And that's fairly precise in terms of its definition. Unfortunately, what tends to happen generally is people, if, so, if you say to somebody, I've got burning pain, they automatically all go, well, that's neuropathic. Um, and there is overlap between the different types of chronic pain. But in order to be more precise, particularly from a research point of view, neuropathic pain has to have positive and negative symptoms within the distribution of a nerve territory. But even before that, there's got to be a disease or injury that can logically explain um, that pain. So, for example, carpal tunnel, really simple. And if somebody's got pain within the distribution of the median nerve in their hand, and you go, okay, on ultrasound, they've got entrapment of the median nerve, and they have the signs and symptoms in the distribution of that nerve, then that's carpal tunnel, and then you confirm it with nerve conduction studies. So that's a good, clear, specific model of neuropathic pain. Same thing for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Because you can get burning pain in the other two types of chronic pain mechanistic descriptors, which are uh, nociplasticity. And nociplasticity is not about disease or injury of a nerve. It's probably best thought of as dysfunction of the pain alarm system, the nociceptors, and the nervous system but the actual system isn't directly damaged. So nociplasticity is probably the kind of pain you would, or the mechanistic descriptor you would use for osteoarthritis or um, cervical spondylosis, um, because there the issue isn't a disease or damage of a nerve, it's dysfunction of a nerve. The third mechanistic descriptor would be central sensitivity syndrome. So conditions like low back pain, or conditions like fibromyalgia, which we believe increasingly are brain-driven problems. So there's a problem within the neuroendocrine system that drives conditions like fibromyalgia and even musc non-specific musculoskeletal low back pain. Because try as we, we might to find a specific nociceptive focus for these conditions, we failed. Um, and so those conditions are believed to be best thought of as neurological diseases or brain-driven processes. So neuropathic, nociplastic, and uh, central sensitivity syndromes. So what you've got in cervical myelopathy is both nociplasticity and uh, neuropathic pain. And making those distinctions on a clinical level for management, are they, are they helpful? They are helpful in the sense that neuropathic pain is difficult because the pain is spontaneous or evoked. So in other words, it can happen out of the blue when you're not doing anything or you can evoke it by particular movements or touching certain body parts. It's unpredictable. It's 
very unpleasant. You know, people describe it as that sort of sensation if you're in the dark and you step on your child's Lego. It's that unexpected, unpleasant, jarring sensation. Whereas nociplastic pain can be paced. You know, you can predict the onset. You can manage your day-to-day activities in order to prevent the pain from predictably increasing. So if, for example, you have you know, fibromyalgia or you've got osteoarthritis and you know what your triggers are and you know what causes a flare-up, you can pace your activity. So you can still be active. You just know when not to push it. You know not to do too much on a good day uh, because you'll pay for it on a bad day. Whereas neuropathic pain, unfortunately, causes people a lot more distress and impacts on their health-related quality of life more because it is unpredictable and intrusive. And of course, many of the drugs used for chronic pain have been studied in the context of neuropathic pain. So mechanistically, you know, your medications such as your antidepressant and anti-epileptic medications are more suited to treating neuropathic pain. So as a clinician, it is important to make those distinctions because it will take you down different avenues from a pain medicine point of view in terms of treatment. And you sort of allude to this in, in the book that perhaps that neuropathic element can be more challenging to try and manage. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it can be because, you know, what you're trying to do is dampen down a short-circuiting electrical system. And the problem is the drugs we use to do that dampen down all of the other um, electrical activity in the body leading to side effects such as sleepiness and, you know, difficulty with other types, with other systems in the body that are sometimes harder to bear than the actual pain itself. And neuropathic pain is changeable. You know, the nervous system is plastic and uh, that injury um, evolves over time. And so, and of course, if, if you're experiencing these intrusive symptoms on an unpredictable basis, it's very hard to get anything done. And, uh, you know, it's like having a particularly annoying child you know, jump up on you from time to time as you're trying to do things, tugging at you and distracting you and taking your attention away from what you're trying to achieve. Um, And so people really struggle with neuropathic pain. When I sort of see people who perhaps I'm assessing them for various different reasons, and they're often on lots of medication for pain, and we talk about the implications of undergoing an operation, I do often try and touch on their potential perception in that situation. I'm often greeted by this response of, oh, I'm used to pain, I I can deal with it. Is that a biologically valid concept? Is that something that, you know, we're talking about the idea of evolving that neuroplasticity. Can one get used to pain? Yeah, there are vulnerability and resilience factors involved in pain perception and pain-related disability. So I touched on catastrophizing, anxiety, depression. Um, These are all negative predictors of being able to cope successfully with pain. But on the other hand, uh, self-efficacy. So, you know, the idea that you can positively influence the outcome of most situations because you have in the past um, a certain amount of stoicism and resilience, um, which we try and build into people when we have them, you know, work with our pain management psychologists and physiotherapists. Those particular cognitive constructs have been studied and uh, we know which patients, you know, cope less well than others. Um, But somebody might report to you as a surgeon um, differently to what they'll report to uh, in any other situation. So there's this concept called symptom magnification because 
if you worry that you won't be believed, then during a consultation, you may unconsciously exaggerate your symptoms because you want to be believed, particularly in conditions like chronic pain, where there isn't often very much to see. And so that people learn that, you know, the more exaggerated their presentation is to a clinician, the more likely they are to have a treatment. And if their belief is that they need a treatment, then that unconscious motivation will um, be at play. And so if you then see them when they're out in the coffee room or in the tea room at the hospital subsequent to your consultation, that might you might be a bit confused because you might be, well, that seems like a very discordant um, picture. But, you know, it is important to understand that people will both unconsciously exaggerate and underreport their symptoms to clinicians. And, and that can be quite difficult when you're trying to make a decision about whether to proceed to an intervention that has quite significant consequences if it goes wrong. So, Ewan, was it as informative as you remember it? Yeah, definitely. I think you both touched on a great point, the power of your words. I think our self-talk while dealing with pain is so important, and self-motivation and self-compassion plays a big part in dealing with pain. It's like anything. If there's a small percentage of self-doubt, it's going to affect the outcome in a negative way. Plus, we need to get in tune with our bodies and separate the pain we are experiencing from the normal, I've overdone it, pain signals to the pain that means there's something not quite right. And yes, maybe we can't eradicate it completely, but we can definitely, definitely learn to live with it. It's very, very powerful. And of course, we're delighted at Marlopi.org that Abdul has since agreed to become an advisor as part of our scientific advisory uh, committee with the RICO DCM program. So hopefully much more of his expert guidance to come as we help further the research into pain and care in this area. A big thank you again to Professor Abdul Laukin for that interview. Podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's of course lots more information and support to be found at myelopathy.org. But if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.